Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Transatlanticist Politics Podcast at the American Centrum in Hamburg. I'm your host, Andrew Sola. We're doing our summer update today, and there are a lot of issues to discuss, both in Europe and around the world. But I think for me, the theme today is the difference between perception and reality. And if I might say, politics is the art of manipulating public perception of reality. Politics is the art of manipulating public perception about reality. Why do I mention this? Well, Our three main topics today all revolve around public perceptions of reality as well as politics. And we're going to start by discussing France and how Macron mismanaged public perception about raising the retirement age. Also, we'll look at what's going on with the protests in in France after the young man, the young non-white man, was killed at a traffic stop by a French policeman. And again, we need to look at the perception that France is a colorblind republic. Is that perception or reality? Second, we'll talk about the continued increase in success of the far right in Europe. And the far right seems to be making headways on the perception that immigration is a great problem, but the facts sometimes tell us a different story. And the Dutch government just collapsed a couple days ago. And I'm going to argue when we begin to discuss that, that it's because uh, certain perceptions in the Netherlands of an immigration problem were sort of pumped up. Uh, But I'll show you some statistics from Eurostats that disprove this perception. And lastly, we'll discuss the 500th day of the war in Ukraine. And the big questions here are, how do Russians perceive of Putin and his war in Ukraine? And maybe more importantly, how do Russian oligarchs perceive Putin and his war in Ukraine? And of course, This comes after the mutiny, I guess it's being called now, of Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group. So basically, what's going on? What is the reality of what's going on in in Russia or in the corridors of power in the Kremlin? Who knows? And with me today to discuss this, as always, is our EU expert, Dr. Gunter Donner. Welcome, Gunter. Hi. How are you doing today? Very well. Thank you. Beautiful summer day. Is that your perception of reality or reality itself? Well, this is my hope for future realities. Let's put it like this. I won't manipulate your perception of the beautiful day today. It is a hot, sunny day in Hamburg. It is indeed. Okay, well, let's start with France. France is a passion of yours, everything to do with France. Here we are in Macron's tenure as president of the French Republic. And he did something uh, that angered much of France, I don't know who it actually pleased, he raised the retirement age from 62 to 64, despite a lot of protests. So what's your take on Macron's decision to really use everything he could to push this through, despite all of the protests against it? 
Well, that is very simple because it, it's not uh, the first effort to reform the completely overburdened French pension system. Uh, his predecessors in office, some of them at least, tried to do it, but then backed down. He didn't, so they, to put it in a word, it's bravo. Macron has finally shown backbone. He has established, based on economic analysis, on the future of a pension system, which is, has been co-financed by added public debt for decades. And he's the first to carry it through right to the bitter end, which in his case succeeded. And when the the opposition, the opposition doesn't really exist anymore in a political way in France because the old parties, the Gaullists and the Socialists, don't play any role. The Socialists are at each other's throat and they command between 10 and 12% of the votes. Uh, the Gaullists, likewise... The opposition is Marine Le Pen. Uh, of course, she e exploited it as she exploited other questions of social discontent during the Yellow Vest movement a year or two ago. But he did it, he carried it through against the opposition from the street, orchestrated by all sorts of trade unions, none, none of whom had any alternative how to ensure that the pension system won't collapse totally. Or and this, this is an interesting point, Gunter, because as you note, the workers themselves, their perception was that there are other ways of fixing it. And yes. they were mad at Macron by saying he didn't explore other ways of fixing it besides raising the retirement age. And some of these were, of course, increasing taxes on corporations and the wealthy. So, I mean, there, there's really a very deep division about how the pension system could be reformed. And uh, the working people said, well, don't do it by making us work two more years. Do it by, you know, other means. Well, these other means were quite uh, entertaining to read. A French friend of mine sent me a few of these demands. So confiscate private gold. It further increased taxation in France. France is one of the most, uh, has one of the most highest systems of taxation for everyone. All this would just may add a few more billions to the public coffers, which are going to evaporate within a week. But then they would further cripple the French economy, reducing investment, reducing employment, and thereby, of course, damaging the future pension system. The thing, uh, and that stands out, uh, the French left, and it's a half, uh, half of it, uh, at least as the organizers are concerned, is, in, is, a, is, is an opposition outside parliament because uh, 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 the uh, NUP boss isn't even a member of the fr French parliament. Yeah, let's, from, let's just from, pause. From the outside. Let's just pause right here because there mm -hmm. are some new parties that we need to discuss. You just mentioned NUP, which is the New Ecological and Social People's Union, mm -hmm. and uh, they're currently polling at twenty-five percent, technically mm -hmm. the largest uh, political party in France. Although I guess they didn't exist when the last presidential elections occurred. 
So that sounds like just from the name, I know nothing about them, New Ecological and Social People's Union. It sounds like some sort of mixture of a Green Party and a center-left party. If I may add something, it, it isn't a party at all. You can't join it. It's an alliance of various interest groups, both within the Assemblée Nationale and without. Uh, so whether or not uh, you ask, will you vote for NUP in 27? Uh, that's still a, some time to go. Uh, nobody knows whether this p- grouping will still exist. As far as the socialists are concerned, it's rather uncertain. The thing is, it's not a party in a classical sense. It's an alliance of, of formerly rivaling groups of the the wider specter of the left, from ecologists to classical communists to um, socialists, and so on and so forth. So uh, the idea that this will remain a stable party until the next presidential election and Macron can be re-elected as, as often as he wishes. It's not like his final period in office. He, he, contrary to the American president, he can be re-elected. His party, the, the La République en Marche, is entirely based on him. There mm-hmm. is nobody to replace him. This is probably the, the biggest question in the whole thing. If he were to, to disappear, the thing is that the extreme right, and not Noop, uh, uh, will form the most credible and serious opposition and uh, applicant for, for power in France, that, of course, would be a disaster. And indeed, the poll that I see here from Politico has this new noop party or not party on 25 percentage points. Second place is Marine Le Pen's mm. party, the far-right party, and Ma- uh, Macron is not doing so well. His party is at 22%. Of course, he, well, he isn't, he isn't doing well. His party was never doing very well. But as a person, there aren't that many alternatives. Uh, when Noop took part in the last presidential election, I- indeed, they were formed just prior to that. But the thing is, they are not as united as a party normally is understood to be. Uh, so it's rather, it's rather debatable whether they have, will have the stamina to, to hold out until twenty seven. All right, well, let's discuss then the next big piece of news coming out of France, which some mm-hmm. have called France's George Floyd moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there were protests throughout France, and they seem to be settling down now, but pretty violent protests throughout France after the shooting of a young non-white man by police in a traffic stop. And many people said this called into question the perception that France is a colorblind republic. And many now are arguing that, well, yes, in in theory, France is a colorblind republic, as mm-hmm. the United States is. In practice, uh, that's not the case. Racism still exists. Systemic racism exists in France. And indeed, there are plenty of racists in France, as we know. Uh, for example, many in Marine Le Pen's party we could probably describe as racist, although we have to be careful because racists never describe themselves as being racist. But let's just say that they have uh, some uh, racist tendencies. So uh, what what do you make of these? Well, first of all, of of the accusation that uh, the police force in Paris, for example, is systemically racist. 
Well, the, um, the conflict has much deeper roots than that. And the question of whether or not a policeman and many Frenchmen of whatever uh, Arab or black African immigrant status among their forefathers are serving within the police force, that this is a very old problem. And the problem is that's underlying is, is a huge social cleavage. And that puts it apart from what you what you've occurred and might occur in the future in America. The French welfare state is one of the most generous and benevolent the world has ever seen. And irrespective of your race, uh, they are Frenchmen. 99% of them have a French nationality. They speak French as a first language. Uh, they have access to schools if they attend. They have access to social welfare systems um, no American could ever dream of, and not even a Brit. But they are discriminated, isolated, and many are, be, are made felt they are unwelcome. Uh, this has, of course, increased after the Islamist assassinations of, of innocent citizens that has further sharpened an aggression, an aggressiveness of the French population against uh, m these minorities. Um, this is one thing. The, ba the basic problem is their social and socioeconomic isolation. There are, of course, uh, exceptions, as usual, confirming the rules, that young Frenchmen with a migrant background, uh, maybe decades ago, make it to the uh, high uh, excellence of society, to academia, wherever. But these, act, these are quite more often than not exceptions. There are schools and there are universities. It all doesn't cost a penny. But you have to go there. You have to have the living conditions, the family conditions, and during your youth to get integrated and to make use of it. And now what we have is that many of these people are forced to live in the, what the French call la banlieue, this is huge settlements, mostly built during the 60s, 70s, and early 80s, probably. Uh, outside the bigger cities, these tend to become what you would consider rather ghetto-like, isolated parts where other people, and now we have to introduce race, mostly white people, would rather prefer not to live. So these people are, become isolated, they become angry against the French welfare state. And in many cases, their contact to the French general living is the social aid office and the police. And the police, of course, is the number one adversary to these young people. There is an enormous gang violence in France. And in these parts of towns, it's unwise to walk as a foreigner. So the police, they will be uh, uh, on the alert. So will be the others. Transgressions from both sides are the norm rather than the exception. And that also adds up to a history of mutual hatred. Right. And, it's, uh, uh, I, I just wanted to quickly break in here. You know, the, the question is, is the police force, say, system, systemically racist in France? It's funny, uh, an American policeman famously said, I've worked in every type of neighborhood. When I worked in a white neighborhood, I hated white people. 
the cops said this mm-hmm. when I worked in a black neighborhood, I hated black people. Mm-hmm. When I worked in a Latino neighborhood, I hated uh, Latinos because every when you're a police officer, no matter where you are, you're dealing with the worst type of people you do. in uh, that certain neighborhood. And you, you know, if I guess if you're doing every day, I'm not condoning these statements. I'm just saying it's it's interesting how some police officers perceive of the people that they're supposedly serving and protecting when you're dealing with bad versions of all of them you necessarily well i guess you need to fight against developing these prejudices but um i i want to stick with this concept of immigration because you noted that immigration caused some of these problems and i want to move on to our, our second major theme for today which is the the uh, increasing, I guess, success of far-right parties throughout Europe. And, and far-right parties, for me, always succeed by managing or changing public perceptions of national identity and immigration. But it's curious because sometimes the, the facts are totally against it. And, and right now I'm speaking specifically of the Dutch government collapse. Mm-hmm. And it collapsed due to a dispute over allowing the children of asylum seekers to get asylum with their parents or their mother or father. And uh, one proposal was that the children should not be allowed into the Netherlands for two years. And the separation of families proved to be something that the some of the coalition partners could not agree to, and therefore the government collapsed. What's What's funny about this is the Dutch government collapsed basically because that applied to maybe a hundred kids. So the entire Dutch government collapsed over a decision that would affect maybe a hundred children, which seems to be totally blown out of proportion. And I was looking at Eurostat, which is my favorite EU website, just to get a sense of how big of a problem immigration is, namely asylum applications are in the Netherlands compared to other countries. Like, Mm -hmm. did something crazy happen? And no, (laughs) the EU average is 1,973 asylum applications per million residents. Mm -hmm. The Netherlands is exactly at that number at 2,000. So the Netherlands is totally average in many ways, but -hmm. totally average when it comes to immigration. Uh, France as well. We were just talking about France. France is no different than the average, slightly Mm -hmm. more, just by like 1% more. The countries that should be complaining about this the most are Cyprus and Austria. So we said the average was around 2,000 per million residents. In Cyprus, it's nearly 25,000, 12 times times worse, you Mm -hmm. might say, if you are a right winger. And Austria is at about... 13,000, so six times greater. And yet these countries don't seem to be suffering massive collapses uh, or, or veerings to the right. I just wanted to mention this, that right-wing parties can be very, very successful in creating a perception of a huge, unfair immigration situation. But as we see in, in the case of the Netherlands, it's, it's just overblown. It doesn't exist. And I found that so shocking that the government would collapse over what comes down to a negligible, basically handfuls of, of potential asylum seekers and their family members. But maybe this is just the 
the the outward thing. Uh, forming a government in the Netherlands normally takes a month because there is no threshold. So any party running uh, will will in the end uh, sit in parliament. I think uh, that the former or still acting prime minister just realized and he, he was panic stricken that with the uh, uh, Christian Democrats and this was the former part of government they then re- renounced their participation due to this afore described event I think the government was under the panic of the enormous influence of the extreme right in the Netherlands some years ago and he managed to hush this up a bit and to me this was a panic driven reaction not not based on facts or sudden events but maybe there were there were further points of instability within the government you you can't really tell and this was then taken as the the thing so that he will uh, could maintain a strong anti-immigration course which uh, he probably will given the fact that uh, Wilders and others from the extreme right in, in, in the Netherlands could become rather dangerous rivals for him during the forthcoming election in November. Great. Uh, but let's turn to Germany now. Mm-hmm. We've been avoiding the great economic power in the center of Europe, Germany. And there's some news from the far right in Germany too, some more victories for the AfD, the alternative for Deutschland, and a recent poll by a big state news agency, the ARD, ARD poll. Uh, The big headline is that the AfD, the alternative for Deutschland, is the second biggest political party, according to the poll, at 20%. So one in, I guess you could describe one in five Germans right now as being far right, which is always scary. The CDU, Merkel's party, is at 28%. The leader of the current coalition, the SPD, is at 18%. Uh, the Greens are at 14, and the FDP, the Liberals, are at 7. So, Gunter, uh, the AF day is gaining more ground. What do you think about this? Well, basically, there are two things to, take, to, to keep apart. The one is local success, and that got famous uh, when uh, uh, during local elections in eastern Germany, for the first time in history, AFD candidates uh, managed to attain public office. Uh, This is a very regional event, and we have to face the fact that the AFD in East Germany plays a totally different role than it it does throughout uh, at the general uh, uh, federal level. This is due to, uh, to my knowledge, due to the fact that there they have in fact, inherited the role of the we are the true East German opposition to West German capitalism and better knowing attitudes Uh, from the left. The left doesn't play an an important role anymore, even in East German politics, though we have to bear in mind that the left still furnishes the sole prime minister of a German state in Thuringia. He is a member of the left. Though, as a prime minister there, he is, of course, member of the ruling elite. 
So you can you can't be the opposition of the poor citizens uh, opposing the elites, and you can't serve them as prime minister. <laughs> this is this is a, con- a conundrum. You we're, cannot we're, solve we're not, the problem. We're not going to talk about the presidential election in the U.S. today. No, but I, I think no. it's funny uh, the, when people like uh, DeSantis, the the governor of Florida, complains about the elite when here he is the person with all of the power. Like okay, how can you be uh, uh, not a member of the elite when you're the governor? But you, you 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 just have to create an idea, and that's exactly what the AFD does. They have next to no program of their own. They have no answers to uh, uh, important questions of how to increase re- regional investment, how to make sure that more regions uh, can manage to offer workspace and not sink into the uh, down to the level of they are just they're just people living on public transfer pensioners unemployed and so on and so forth so it's still important to attract foreign investors foreign and german investors to east germany it's even more important um, to solve questions of how to finance schools infrastructure uh, hospitals and so on and so forth the afd has nothing to say to that what they do, and they are quite clever and good at this, is they are the number one factory if, it, if it's about how, who is a scapegoat for what. And they offer scapegoats galore, and anybody who feels discontented, dissatisfied, disillusioned with whatever politics have hitherto done on, on, or, or not done to uh, her or to him, uh, they could then join this group of saying we are the victims. The AFD plays heavily on the victimization of the ordinary citizen of not too fat a bank account. In fact, they have become, and that is very, we have to think about, that is quite concerning, they have become the sole opposition. And in fact, in these regional elections, all other parties joined on one final candidate for the runoff election, and thereby they were playing right in the hands of mm. the AFD, saying, just look, it's right there. This is six of one and half a dozen of the other. We are the sole alternative. Thank you. So that was, it was, it, it was a, a trick. It was, it was very successful. And this won't happen at federal level in Germany. They are ostracized. Nobody will uh, form a coalition with them. But it goes to show that discontent has to be taken more seriously. Uh, discontent and the feeling of it. Many people feel disillusioned with politics, though the average German uh, has a much better life than many other Europeans and many other people in the world, given our social protection scheme, our quite powerful uh, uh, economy and, 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 and all that. But the idea of uh, they don't do anything for me, they do whatever for whoever on on the globe, this alienates voters and the AFD benefits of that. You made a number of very interesting points, but the, the one point that I find always interesting is the politics of grievance is so very powerful. Yeah. And of course, when you ask the next question of, of these political parties who always play the grievance card. Well, what would you do about it? It's hard to find a program mm-hmm. of fixing the problems that they 
have so many problems with. And, and when it, say, comes to immigration in a uh, very advanced, wealthy country like Germany or the Netherlands, for that matter, skilled immigrants are keeping their health systems alive, of for course. example. I mean, you can't, there's so many open jobs and needed people in hospitals and medical centers throughout Germany. There aren't enough Germans in school who could ever fill all of those open positions. Um, so, would, Gunter, uh, last question about the AFD. Uh, what do the next couple of years look like then in Germany? Uh, are you going to are we going to see the AFD increasing, or is twenty their maximum ceiling well, here? Well, um, uh, uh, polls are one polls are one thing. Final uh, election results are another. At the moment, at the moment, due to some highly unbalanced and not very, not very skillful handling of rather important political uh, legislation, it was a, above all the Green Party who alienated many voters, uh, much to the um, dislike of their social democratic partners. Classically speaking, the SPD was the party of the working people. It no longer is, I have to say. Who is now the party of the working people? There isn't any. There are no classics anymore. So people tend to, to hop from one party to another. They tend to over to over uh, value uh, momentary legislation or discussions. Maybe these are forgotten with, within a year. And so we have a a rather growing amount of discontent with the present Schultz uh, government for many reasons. It's the traditional East German against West German sentiment, the active, hardcore, anti-establishment voters, formerly voting for the Linke or the left, now they vote for the AFD. I would figure those are slightly below 20% in East Germany. Then there are others who add themselves to it. They are dissatisfied with whatever. Their diesel cars have been made valueless. They, are, they shall now buy electric vehicles. They will, they will never do because they either don't have the infrastructure or they don't believe in this as a solution. So they have to retrain their value system and they are opposed to that. The Greens will have to learn this lesson. And I think that it's the first time they do it when they are in power. It's the second time they are in power they have to learn the lesson that you cannot force people to reinvent themselves. You have to, to balance carefully individual preferences and political necessities as you see them. It's curious to me that the Greens did so well in how the, with their forceful response to the foreign policy challenges facing Germany, namely the war in Ukraine, but have, have, have lost all of that popularity, burned all of their their gains with some uh, domestic They were courageous decisions. when the Ukraine war started. They were courageous, far more courageous than the SPD, uh, which at that time was still largely under the influence of the uh, disciples of Herr Schroeder, a, a, um, a great friend of Putin's. The cultists. Uh, yes, but the <laughs> SPD has changed as well. The AFD has taken over this role, especially for East Germany. The AFD, AFD posing as a peace party, love your communist dictator, uh, to me is, uh, uh, I mean, with a knowledge of German history, a German extreme 
right person who is always against Bolshevism, but now they love a KGB officer who poses as a Tsar. Um, well, this the, is ridiculous, the, and that goes to show the politics for how, of opposition. It yeah, goes to show for how stupid they think the electorate if is. If the coalition government said like milk and butter was good, they would be against milk. Of and course, butter, just, yes, just to be Absolutely. against milk. Yeah, and butter. you're right. And we're big fans of milk and butter on this show. <laughs> okay, let's move on to to the final uh, topic of today. But before we get there, I want to do a segue into Sweden because. You know, Sweden still wants to join NATO, and Turkey is still opposing Sweden joining NATO. And 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 again, Sweden didn't do itself any favors with placating Erdogan in Turkey because uh, the Swedish government, the Swedish courts, were basically allowed a a protest, the burning of a Quran in S- Stockholm, actually by a an Iraqi refugee. Mm-hmm. And this this irritated, of course, Erdogan and Turkey. Not not to mention Iran, and and basically every Islamic country on the planet. Uh, what's your take on on that entire situation? Why is Sweden in basically? I guess their hands are tied, but uh, they knew that allowing this protest would probably not help them with NATO accession. Well, it's more a question of not punishing such an event uh, than of actively promoting it. Um, Basically, the Swedish idea is the state is totally free and neutral from religion. So uh, the state is a state and uh, religion is your private thing. And you you can affiliate you to whatever religious community and 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 live accordingly, but that is your private decision. The state, as such, does not favour religion. Uh, this this was a thing from the seventies, when uh, in former times, hundred years ago, the uh, Swedish, the sole Swedish church then in existence was the state church, the Protestant state church. They they served as the registrar's office for the government, but um, since the Middle Ages. Um, but no, they are caught between the, the devil and the deep blue sea because whoever wishes to make the way of the, the country's way into NATO more difficult, and probably it's not an, an, half, an Iraqi half-wit refugee, there are maybe people behind it. A Putin would like to see more difficulties, more than Erdogan probably. But the thing is no. Uh, you burn a book, and I burn a book. I burn a book of whatever, Strindberg. Uh, nobody can punish me for it, uh, not even for arson, if, unless I do it in an unsuitable occasion. But now I burn another book, which is a religious one. But there are, for the Swedish legislation, there's no difference. That's the basic theory behind it. What they now have to change is they A, have to maybe, uh, um, as it's done in Germany, you would be indicted for this. And the thing is not that you burnt a book you don't believe in, it's because you you egg on race and minority an, hatred. An, an act of incitement. It's an act of incitement of social unrest, and and this should be the way to to, clear, to clarify this once and for all. If you don't wish to see more idiots doing such a thing, uh, I have no other word for this because that is that is absolutely absurd, <laughs> and it only helps Putin if Putin gains anything from Sweden joining NATO next year. As for Erdogan, I was I was taken aback that he demanded Ukraine to be made a member. 
when the war will finally have come to an end. And he did it yesterday. And uh, this it goes to show he's unpredictable. Yeah, and he also returned those five yes. or five commanders of mm-hmm. the Azov battalion um, in violation of apparently the agreement he had with Putin about the fact that those five commanders had to stay in Turkey until the end of the war. And let's move to Ukraine now. And again, we're we're viewing everything through through this lens today of politics being about the manipulation of public perception, mm-hmm. and then, of course, the reality. And and Putin has always been a master of manipulating public perception mm-hmm. in within his own country, within Russia, and also in other countries. But what I've been thinking about is is how does this Pergosian mutiny change change people's perceptions, both within Russia and also importantly oligarchs' perceptions, because it seems to be a challenge to to Putin's authority. And uh, no matter how we spin this or one spins this, it doesn't look good, although some people still say, oh, this was all orchestrated by Putin mm-hmm. anyway. I don't believe this. No, not in such a situation. I mean, if he had been... Uh, uh, highly successful on the battlefield now would be 100 miles from Kiev nobody would have thought so and it might not even have occurred but his military plan his whole strategy the idea and at one time Prigozhin is reported to have criticized this and that is the most important thing he has ever done he has criticized the idea that this this campaign was of any good for Russia in the first place And this is the most fundamental criticism of the absurd idea of Putin starting a war without a plan and without the essential resources and and then failing abysmally. And of course, due to the fact that he has so many means at his disposal, he can continue. But what is he doing now? He's sitting, or his soldiers are sitting in tens of rows of of field fortifications, First World War style and waiting for the Ukrainians to kill them there, uh, hoping to to kill a few Ukrainians uh, during this process. Uh, They are far from an offensive. The Russians are no longer in a a mood or able to. They are far from winning this. And uh, the war in the trenches, the totally, uh, it, 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 it capsized. The Russians are now on the defensive side. The, who would have thought this 450 years ago, uh, days ago, sorry, uh, that the Russians would then hunker down in their, in their trenches as the Brits and the Germans did on the Somme in, in 1917 and 16. So all this goes to show that something went abysmally wrong for the Russians and they have no way out of it. Prigozhin probably over estimated himself he, he may not be the, the, the most clever per, the most clever person uh, but but he uh, he knows probably quite well uh, the the Kremlin in, uh, Kremlin insiders and the inside mainstream but what he m- may have missed up or not we don't know is his momentary support within the upper echelons of the Russian army uh, Zurovikin has disappeared and we haven't heard from him uh, uh, ever after. Uh, maybe he was connected to Prigozhin, maybe not. Um, we know for little, but this is definitely a staged a scenery of who now believes that the Russians come out the uh, colossal winner of this conflict. 
I think very few. The the soundbite that nearly every NATO leader has been saying is that this war is a strategic failure for it Russia. I, I, we've been we've been saying that, and it seems that the only person on the Russian side who dared to speak the reality that this is a strategic failure was Prigozhin, and that cost him potentially his life. He may, he may certainly it, his empire. Yeah, but sure. we'll see about that. Uh, but it's weakened Putin's role and the perception of Putin as the omnipotent dictator of all all the Russias. And so I think it's also probably, and that's what I heard from sources well-connected, probably at a lower level in the armed forces, the Prigozhin, and he was the sole person ever to present the Russians with an idea of victory, uh, it was a, 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 a Pyrrhic victory in Bakhmut, but it was an idea of victory. The rest never came with anything. So maybe within the lower levels or medium levels of the Russian army, the Prigozhin type of leader will have supporters far more than a completely lofty, distanced elite of the armed forces who seem not to worry about casualty rates or about uh, perspectives, about how the enemy becomes stronger and stronger. Uh, and th their sole answer is we hunker down in our trenches. Well, let's wait and see what how, how this will play yeah, out. Yeah, well, we will wait and see. Uh, unfortunately, my prediction is this will still be a long war. I think so. days. It could be another 500 at least. Uh, well, it depends. Probably. It depends on... Uh, the Russians are clearly... If you concentrate entirely on defense, you cannot win the war anymore uh, because you become the object of your adversary. And with now the US uh, furnishing new types of ammunition, ammunition technique, it's a gruesome thing, but war is gruesome. Minefields are gruesome. And whatever the Russians have been using, they have been using cluster munitions from day one. So they, they, they just add evil to evil, but they don't create particularly new evil. Millions of mines may have been laid in Ukraine on Ukrainian soil, and it will take de decades to clear them if ever this is about to happen. So I, what I think that if the Russians were to experience a massive backlash um, a breakthrough through their front, this may well speed up the final procedure. Uh, this much depends on the effectiveness of the offensive, the ongoing, not on the speed. It must be effective. Whether or not it happens within two, two weeks is uh, a layman's perception. Right. And again, going back to perceptions and reality, it's unfortunate that Zelensky and the commanders of the Ukrainian military have to battle Western perceptions, especially of donor fatigue mm -hmm. and various types of fatigue of people who wonder, citizens in the West who wonder why so much money needs to be spent on, uh, on Ukraine. But the reality is that for the overall security architecture of, of Europe, uh, it's quite very critical that Ukraine wins and they should basically be given as much time and as many resources mm -hmm. as are needed. But that is all we have for today. And 
Gunter, I wish you a happy rest of the summer. Oh, yes. Thank you. Same to you. And to our listeners, I hope you have a nice summer. We'll be back. It's very soon. We're going to be talking U.S. politics as we're getting into uh, the election season. Never Another too seen. <laughs> Even for us Europeans. Right. Take care, Gunter. <laughs> you too. Cheerio. Bye. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.